Baseball buffet has started. Step up to the plate and get in the buffet line. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and crackers, Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Welcome to Baseball Buffet, our monthly roundtable focusing on recent baseball events. This month marks our 50th podcast, over five years of Baseball Buffet. To celebrate, we're reviving some of our favorite last bites. Our buffet of baseball commentators, Andy Jaffiani, Tom Henniger, Chuck Hildebrandt, and Stuart Che have selected several of their best bites for your enjoyment. We hope you like them as well. But before we jump to the past, Chuck offers a brand new bite on John Means' recent no-hitter and almost perfect game. It occurs to me that John Means literally came as close to a perfect game on May 5th as a pitcher can get without actually achieving a perfect game. It's obviously closer to a perfect game than Joe Musgrove's or Carlos Rodon's no-hitters earlier this year because each of those guys put a hitter on base by their own volition on a hit-by-pitch. Well, Means actually struck out Sam Haggerty, which is almost always a bona fide out, but in some weird twist of the rules, as a strike three wild pitch, was not an out. It's closer to a perfect game than the famous Ernie Shore game of 1917, because starting pitcher Babe Ruth walked leadoff hitter Ray Morgan before getting thrown out, arguing with the umpire about it. While Shore came in, caught Morgan stealing right away, then retired the next 26 hitters in a row. It actually was considered a perfect game for decades before being changed in the great no-hitter purge of 1991. But even if it were still considered so, Short still faced only 26 hitters, short of a full game. So Means' effort is closer. It's even closer to a perfect game than Andres Galarraga's famous 2010 game. Because although Jason Donald was ruled safe, even as he was clearly beat to the bag by Galarraga, it was still ruled a single. And Galarraga still faced 28 hitters a circumstance which, by definition, precludes it from being considered a perfect game. But because Sam Haggerty was caught stealing on the very next play, Means still faced only 27 hitters doing everything he had to do to record an out against each of them. So Means' game was still closer. I suppose the only way Means could have gotten even closer to a perfect game than this is if the third strike got by the catcher as a pass ball instead of a wild pitch, which would have relieved Means of the responsibility even for that. But... I think that would be splitting hairs. But otherwise, yeah, this was as close as it gets, folks. Many of our fondest last bites are the funniest. Here are four. First, Andy addresses the new formula for the Philly fanatic. Next, Tom offers a story from the spaceman, Bill Lee. Then Chuck argues that the walk-off music for visiting pitchers is all wrong. Finally, Stu shows us why alcohol and doggy doors don't mix. On Sunday in Clearwater, Florida, the Phillies unveiled a reboot of their beloved 42-year-old misfit mascot, (laughs) the Philly Fanatic. The new look featured a slightly lighter green fur, lesser bulbous body shape, and larger backside. A weird set of scaly, flightless wings... Uh, bushier eyebrows with star-shaped eyelids, a large powder blue tail, and a shorter cylindrical snout, and different shoes, different socks. 
And, of course, the fans have taken to social media with a fervor only Philadelphia fans can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, hashtag, not my fanatic. Oh, and no. <laughs> one of my favorite, twi- favorite Twitter comments was, new fanatic is the off-brand knockoff version you win after sinking 50 bucks into a skee-ball on the boardwalk in Wildwood. <laughs> <laughs> the creators of the original Philly Fanatic accused the Phillies of an affront to our intellectual property rights and to Phillies fans everywhere. The timing of this redesign comes after the Phillies sued the New York company that created the Fanatic last August, alleging the company threatened to terminate the Phillies' rights to the Fanatic as of June and make the Fanatic a free agent unless the team renegotiate its 1984 agreement to acquire the mascot's rights. <laughs> the lawsuit is currently in its discovery phase. So, until then... Right. Will it be discovered anywhere <laughs> on the fanatic's body? <laughs> I really hope so. Where? I really hope so. Well, I, I scored an old copy of Bill Lee's The Wrong Stuff while on vacation this fall and spent some of the holiday time reading it. And Lee, who turned 73 over the weekend... There's a reason to celebrate, and I'd like to share a slice of Bill Lee as a final bite. So, in a chapter in which he weighs in on a variety of topics, from the prevalence of the spitball to umpiring, Lee writes that it bugged him that plate umpires always gave Tigers veteran and soon-to-be Hall of Famer Al Kaline the close calls at the plate. He says he once threw Kaline five straight strikes and walked him when Al took a 3-2 slider that began on the outside of the plate and finished down the middle. The ump gave him the call. And as Kaline ran down to first, Lee barked, Swing the bat, for Christ's sake. You're not a statue until you have pigeon shit on your shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Kaline openly laughed at him, and when Lee jumped on the umpire after the game, Lee said the umpire replied, Son, Mr. Kaline will let you know it's a strike by doubling off the wall. <laughs> <laughs> Towards the end of this season, I was at a White Sox game, and the opposing team changed pitchers mid-inning, and they played that song that they always do. Na 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 na. Hey hey hey. Goodbye. I had heard it a hundred times before, but at that moment, it struck me as weird, almost as though the White Sox are glad this pitcher who just gave up a gaggle of runs to them is leaving. <laughs> the Cubs are even more direct in their feelings about the opposing pitcher being changed mid-inning when they're not playing YMCA, which itself makes no sense because it means nothing in the context of the moment. They're playing hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more, no more, no more, no more. As though they're glad the guy is leaving and don't want him to darken their door anymore. What? Are the Cubs crazy? Why would you want the guy who just gave up a shit ton of runs to you to not come back no more, no more, no more, no more? Wouldn't you want him to stick around? Wouldn't you want him to come back? So I think the Cubs should change their mid-inning opposing pitcher change song to Baby Come Back. Yeah. You know, Baby Come Back. Any, player, any kind of see. There was something in everything about the way you gave up runs to us. You don't want that pitcher to hit the road and don't come back no more, etc. You want that baby to come back and give up more walks, more hits, more runs, and eventually the game. That's what you want. Gary, make it so. Well, the dog days came late for the Padres this year. Sunday night, October 6th, two of their Arizona Fall League pitchers, Jacob Nix and Tom Cosgrove, <laughs> tied one on, then wandered toward their apartment in Peoria. Stopping in an unfamiliar house, the inebriated Nix tried to crawl through a doggy door. The resident of the house kicked Nix in the face, tased him, and called the police. Nix and Cosgrove were found nearby and apprehended without incident. <laughs> Sounded like incident to me. Yeah. I'll tell you, this wow. doggy door scandals yeah. are just ripping baseball apart. The Last Bite funniness continues as Andy remembers the day Harmon Killebrew met David Letterman. 
Then Stu recalls the day the San Diego chicken became the San Diego rooster. Reminding us all of the Astros' trash-banging World Series, Tom gives us the true story of Astro the Grouch. Harmon Killebrew Night on Late Night with David Letterman. (laughs) Minnesota Twins Hall of Famer Harmon Killebrew had originally been part of the Late Night with David Letterman film festival that aired on November 30th, 1985. But he and his film were bumped because the show ran too long. So Dave, a big baseball fan, decided to devote an entire show to Killebrew on February 11th, 1986. In addition to showing his film, along with some outtakes, the show saluted him in a This Is Your Life style tribute, featuring Harmon's best friend and former Twins roommate, Bob Allison, and also Jim Cott, who was sitting in the audience. The rest of the show featured Liberace in what might have been his last TV appearance, Charlie Pride, a favorite of Harmon's, who sang Mountain of Love over the telephone, an artist, <laughs> an artist, Leroy Neiman, who was in studio painting a life-size portrait of Harmon and Dave in real time while the show was going on. The show opened with Dave asking Harmon, if some folks up in the last row could get a souvenir, Killer, in a shirt and tie, casually holding a bat, said, it's been a while, I'll do my best, as he begins whacking balls effortlessly into the audience. <laughs> Dave proclaimed, still got good wood. The entire episode can be found on YouTube. I, as I the recommend. audience scatters into the night. <laughs> well, this isn't much, but it cheered me during these times. On September 24th, 1969, at San Diego Stadium, the game between the Padres and the Giants was delayed in the sixth inning when a live rooster made its way onto the field and sat on the warning track in left center field. (laughs) Uh, Ivan Morrell was playing center field for the Padres that day. Uh, He went over, corralled the chicken, and brought it over to the left field bullpen. (laughs) That's fantastic. Chickens will always be funny. Well, leave it to the St. Paul Saints, the independent league team owned and operated by Mike Vec, to bring you Astro the Grouch. (laughs) <laughs> promotion for this season includes a bobblehead of a trash can with what looks like a cousin to Oscar the Grouch barely peeking out of the top. Well, Astro happens to talk, barking, curveball, checkup, <laughs> fastball, slider. For good measure, the trash can has two antennas on the top to help it pick up radio and TV frequencies. <laughs> so even if there is no American Association season in 2020, the Astro Bobblehead can be purchased on the Saints' website with a percentage of proceeds going to charity. Astro the Grouch is waiting to call the next pitch for you. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. I'm buying one today. Many of the best last bites focused on values, both good and bad, that can be found in baseball. For Chuck, baseball is not a child's game played by adults. It's a player's job. Next, Stu applauds the public spirit service of those trying to save a Negro League stadium. And he brings back some memories of the 1989 Earthquake World Series, while Tom recalls a time the late Pedro Gomez helped a colleague in need. Lastly, Stu reminds us of what baseball now seems to value the most. The COVID pandemic has been the most consequential calamity to occur on a global basis since World War II. And here in America... Over 40 million working people have applied for benefits while the unemployment rates soar to Great Depression levels. With this as a backdrop, Major League Baseball, the owners, and their allies in the media like to put across the idea that it's a privilege 
to play the game for a living and that players are lucky to be playing a kid's game for money. They know fans will be receptive to this line of rhetoric because most of them will never make the kind of wages Major League players do. This is a disingenuous line of rhetoric for the simple fact that it's a game only to us fans who buy tickets or turn on the TV to watch a game so we can have a good time and forget our own troubles for a bit. To these players, though, baseball is a job with all the requirements of a job, filling out employment paperwork, showing up on time, working hard and putting in long hours, frequently seven days a week, attending meetings, following workplace rules and protocols, and fighting every day just to keep from getting fired for any or no reason at all on a moment's notice. And when they hit a certain point, which for most players is in their 20s, they're cut loose from this thing they've been dedicating their entire lives to excel at, and they're expected to take a 90-degree turn and just go to work doing something whatever else. There's nothing about that that's a game. That's very serious business. So please take a moment to remember that when the powers that be try to get you to resent baseball players for getting paid for doing exactly what we are asking them to do, entertain us. Because there's nothing easy about it. It's goddamn hard work, just like your job. Well done. Yeah. Well Good stuff. Good stuff. There are only five remaining stadia where Negro League teams played regularly. Uh, one is in Hamtramck, a suburb of Detroit. Three Negro League teams played at the park between 1930 and 37, at a time in which Hamtramck's population was mostly Polish. Hamtramck Stadium was also the home base for the city's 1959 Little League Championship team. During the 1970s, however, two local high schools that used the field closed, and for years Hamtramck Stadium sat nearly idle. Now the grandstand looms over a vast green pasture. A few years ago, the Friends of Historic Hamtramck Stadium began their efforts to bring attention to the site's community and baseball histories. In 2012, the park was placed on the National Registry of Historic Places. The Friends have raised funds in order to refurbish the park for baseball, soccer, and even cricket in order to match the community's needs. And after a bad month of baseball news, I wanted to say something positive, and I think this is a great effort. You're here. 30 years ago yesterday, October 17, 1989, at 5.04 p.m. Pacific Time, 8.04 in Philadelphia, exactly <laughs> 31 minutes before the first pitch of Game 3 of the World Series at Candlestick Park, a teenage me was watching Tim McCarver recap Game 2 on the 12-inch portable TV in my bedroom. When the picture began to break up, an announcer Al Michaels cuts in and says, I'll tell you what, static, static, static. We're having an earth, and the picture goes black. I remember running to the kitchen where my mom was on the telephone. I interrupted her yelling, there's an earthquake in San Francisco. She ended her call, and we watched the rest of the live coverage on the living room television. The Goodyear blimp was there to capture aerial shots of the ballpark, but almost instantly it had turned its view onto the city's destruction unfolding in real time. It was so real and so unlike anything I'd ever seen before. When the broadcasts from the ballpark resumed, players and their families were on the field, looking shaken and visibly upset, some crying. You knew this wasn't about baseball anymore. The best description of the earthquake came from Giants pitcher and now broadcaster Mike Kruko, who said it felt like a 600-pound gopher who had rolled in from behind the right field fence. The Loma Piata earthquake reached a magnitude of 6.9 and lasted 17 seconds. It caused 63 deaths, over 3,700 injuries, and more than $6 billion worth of damage. 
The series resumed 10 days later on October 27th and finished the next day with the A's sweeping the San Francisco Giants in four games. It was, at the time, the latest date for a World Series to complete. Mm-hmm. Well, the last year will be remembered for all the Hall of Famers we lost, star players in their prime 50, 60 years ago. But recently the game lost a young man, 58-year-old Pedro Gomez, a longtime ESPN journalist who died unexpectedly on February 7th. He's been highly praised as a decent, humble man who was a mentor to many young journalists and a friendly sort to players and fans everywhere he went. His wife, Sandy, was unaware of his mentoring until hearing from numerous writers who had been helped by Pedro. And that includes ESPN's Howard Bryant, who told the story of his days covering Bay Area high school sports for the Oakland Tribune as a young man, but getting called up to sub for the A's beat writer for a few games in 1993. When Bryant joined a group of writers and manager Tony LaRusse's office, LaRusse jumped on Bryant for a factually incorrect headline to a story about an A's loss the day before. In Bryant's account of events, while LaRusso was unloading on him, a voice interrupted the manager. Jesus Christ, Tony, you know we don't write the headlines. The story is right. Leave the kid alone. Why are you embarrassing him? And it was Pedro, whom I didn't know, never had met, and who worked for the San Jose Mercury News, a rival paper. This was the kind of person he was. A room full of vets watched a rookie reporter get savaged by a Hall of Fame manager, and only one stood up. Gomez continued to mentor Bryant, and the two became close friends. And it's a shame we've now lost Gomez, among all the others who have contributed so much to the game. I actually am breaking the rules. I have two very short bites. Uh, first of all... Maybe oh. <laughs> more for December. Yeah, right. You're a two-bitter. I am a two-bit. <laughs> two-bit baseball analysis, living in my mom's basement. First of all, Major League Baseball had five 100-loss teams this year. That's never happened before. It also had 400 win teams, and that's never happened before. Second, Stephen A. Smith's new contract with ESPN will pay him nearly $8 million a year. This past season, Alex Bregman made $641,000. Wow. Okay, you draw your own conclusions. Good context. Tributes to the living and the dead were a frequent feature of our last bites. Andy celebrates the retirement of her good friend, Gary Pressey. Tom offers tributes to the recently departed Julio Baquer and Whitey Ford. Finally, Chuck ends our 50th program with a tribute to the game we love. This Sunday's contest between the Chicago Cubs and Cardinals at Wrigley Field will be the last regular season game for Cubs organist Gary Pressey, who began his Wrigley Field residency at the Lowry Organ in 1987, although he did actually play a few games in 1986. With the close of the regular season, Pressey will have played for... 2,687 wow. consecutive games. An Iron Man at the Ivories. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Gary said of his exit, I've been here a third of a century, 33 years, and I think the cup is full. A nod to one of his favorites, Jack Brickhouse. Gary is also an unofficial Cubs historian, an avid collector of baseball ephemera, particularly radio broadcasts of both leagues' games. As a close friend and former co-worker, I was fortunate to share the public address booth with him for almost a decade. His passion and encyclopedic knowledge of the game is unmatched. Not to mention his musical repertoire and instinct for the live game. He's a melodic chess player, always ready with several tunes in his head for whatever comes up next. A total pro, a total original... For me, the organ music, much like the ivy-covered walls, is the very foundation of Wrigley Field. But without Gary, the Lowry organ might as well leave with him. Enjoy your much-deserved time away from 1060 West Addison, Gary. See you at the OTB. 
<laughs> well, baseball has lost a host of Hall of Famers in 2020, and those of us who are baby boomers and grew up with the game in the 50s and 60s have seen plenty of other players from our youth also pass on. One death that hit me more personally was that of one of the more interesting and enjoyable people I interviewed for the Tony Oliva bio, Julio Becaire. He arrived from Cuba at age 19, and like Oliva and other Cubans signed by the Washington, Minnesota franchise, faced the obstacles of learning a new culture while trying to find his place in the extremely competitive world of Major League Baseball. He was one of the American League's most productive pinch hitters in the late 50s and enjoyed living in D.C., spending time at the Cuba Club near Griffith Stadium, where he saw Duke Ellington, Count Basie, and many of the jazz greats of the era. In early 1961, with Cuban-U.S. relations deteriorating rapidly, he and his fellow Cubans were forced to make a life-changing decision whether to make Cuba their permanent home or stay in the U.S. to play baseball. He never again saw his father, who passed away before returning to the island was a possibility, and he never again returned to his homeland. He was a delightful storyteller with an infectious laugh, and he told me a wonderful story of facing Camilo Pasquale, a friend and teammate in his first pro season in 1951, but an opponent in the Cuban Winter League later in the decade. Their teams were locked in a scoreless tie in the 11th inning when Julio stepped up to the plate. He said hitting Camilo's devastating curveball was like trying to hit a butterfly. Camilo threw him a changeup, and Julio hit it out of the park for the win. I hit a mistake, Julio exclaimed with a smile, followed by his engaging laugh. A laugh and a man I'll always remember fondly. Lovely. Wow, that's that's so heartbreaking. You hear what a lot of these guys had to endure. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, time for the baseball buffet funeral mass. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, baseball has experienced monumental losses of late um, from Hall of Famers Al Kaline, Tom Seaver, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson to one of the first great ninth inning guys, Ron Paranowski, and one of the great characters of the game, Jay Johnstone. Uh-huh. Today, on the day we acknowledge the 80th birthdays of both John Lennon and the guy who had a game to pay, Joe Pepitone. <laughs> We've learned of the passing of another Hall of Famer, Wadey Ford, the staff ace of six World Series winning teams. I managed to meet Mr. Ford in New York in 1988 when William Morrow, the publishing firm I worked for, published his autobiography titled Slick. He had that impish grin that I'm sure was his trademark when he, Mantle, and Billy Martin caroused bars in New York and other American League cities, including the Copacabana in 1957, where a number of Yankees were celebrating Martin's birthday and engaged in a brawl with a bowling team, an incident that led to Martin getting traded. Something that sticks with me from Slick is Ford admitting his anger at Casey Stengel for not starting him in Game 1 of the 1960 World Series against the Pirates at Forbes Field. With the short right field porch at Yankee Stadium, Stengel liked to save the lefty for the first World Series game at Yankee Stadium. Stengel's plan meant that Ford only got two starts instead of three and wasn't on the mound for Game 7. And Ford believed the Yankees would have won the World Series if he had made three starts. Ford died late last night on the 60th anniversary of his four-hit shout-out of the Pirates in Game 3. With all the nonsense attended to baseball off the field, which are well-known and legion enough that I don't really have to provide any examples, I believe the saving grace of the game is that on the field, it's still a beautiful thing to watch. I love showing up to a game and just watching it. And it doesn't have to be a major league or even professional game. I'll be riding my bike down the street, and I'll see a little league game in progress, or high school or college, or women's or girls' softball, and I'll just stop and watch, even if it's only for a couple or three batters. I just love the symmetry of the game. I love the teamwork that's involved. I love how everything happens sequentially, you know, 
this happens, then this, then this, as opposed to 10 or 22 people just running around or skidding around in seemingly random directions. Baseball is easy to follow, and that's very soothing to me. It's a game that thrives on order and rules. And in a world that seems to be overdosing on disorder and rule-breaking, baseball is a perfect ointment to soothe the psychic owie. I know a lot of people think baseball is boring. They're not completely wrong. Sometimes it is. But a baseball fan knows what to look for in a game. They can find interesting things happening on the field to contemplate, even when everybody seems to be just standing around. And I feel lucky that I can see those interesting things in the game. And if you're a baseball fan, I'm sure you know what I mean, because you can see them too. And that's why I think baseball endures. Oh, these many, many last bites were so yummy for the tummy. However, for now, the baseball buffet must close down. We will revisit it next month when we grab a fresh plate and get started on our next 50 episodes. Number 100, here we come. (laughs) 